Good morning, Grace. Today we officially begin our new series in the Gospel of Mark, which I've entitled Binge Watching Jesus. And last week, Pastor James kicked us off by covering the ending of Mark, and I think he did an excellent job explaining why verses 9 through 20 in Mark 16 are probably not a part of the original text. So he preached that, so guess what? I don't have to. Today we will only look at verse 1, and we're going to do more of an introduction to Mark's gospel today. And what we'll see in Mark's gospel as it unfolds for us is that Mark's gospel is perfect for our day and time. Mark is a fast-paced narrative which moves from one episode to another. So reading Mark is kind of like binge-watching a show on Netflix or Hulu. Mark writes, and he wants you to encounter Jesus and see what he's doing and hear what he is claiming, and then he wants you to make a decision. What are you going to do with Jesus? Mark wants you and me to see Jesus and to keep coming back for more. He writes in such a way that he wants you to say, just one more episode and then I'll go to bed, for those of you who binge watch. Mark wants you to binge watch Jesus. And ultimately, Mark wants you to be awestruck by Jesus. And so the big idea that will hang over this sermon and over this sermon series is this. Let awe of God capture your heart. Be awestruck by Jesus that he justifies sinners like you and me. That his grace qualifies us. That there's no scorecard anymore. Mark knows our propensity to lose our awe and wonder of Jesus. Mark knows how easy it is for the things of God to become too familiar to the people of God. He knows that we can just get used to Jesus and not be awestruck by him anymore. And so Mark wants to pass that awe and that wonder and that amazement of Jesus down to his readers by showing us Jesus in action. Mark knows that every moment of Jesus' ministry and every moment of our ministry is supposed to stir up and rekindle awe of God in the hearts of God's people. All ministry should do that. Every sermon should do that. Your family devotions should be geared towards that. Your discipleship of others and their discipleship of you should do that. All ministry should have as its goal awe of God, wonder, amazement. And that's what Mark is aiming for in his gospel. But when you put it in discipleship terms, the gospel of Mark is about one thing. It's about following Jesus. It's about discipleship. It's about making disciple, making disciples. Awe of God should lead to discipleship, to following Jesus. And what we'll see in Mark's gospel is all these people keep bumping into Jesus and they have to make a decision. Will they believe the claims that Jesus is making and will they follow him as a disciple or will they turn away? Will they be flabbergasted by who he is and what he's claiming? Now, of course, 
many people in Mark's gospel and in the other gospels will try to pick and choose what they like about Jesus, but that never ends well for anyone. What you see is what you get with Jesus. There's no sampling him as if he were a snack that you could grab at Costco and then you just move on. You can't sample Jesus. But that's still how many people approach Jesus. They just want to sample him. Give me a piece of him. But the call of discipleship is demanding. It demands our all. It demands everything of us. Now, of course, none of us gives our all all the time, right? We're sinners. We fail. We run after other lovers. Great is our fickleness, right? God's good and holy law exposes us as the sinners that we are. And that's why repentance is at the heart of discipleship. Let me say that again. Repentance is at the heart of discipleship, at the heart of following Jesus. Just as Martin Luther said in the very first of his 95 theses that he nailed to the church door at Wittenberg almost 500 years ago, 500 years ago this month. His first thesis went like this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. And so this month, Christians and churches around the world are celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Reformation when Luther nailed his 95 theses to the church door at Wittenberg that sparked the Reformation. And the very first word that helped spark the Protestant Reformation was the word repentance. As we'll see later in chapter 1, this is exactly how Jesus began his ministry. In Mark 1.15, he says, repent and believe in the gospel. So we never stop repenting because we are always sinning. Our entire life as disciples revolves around repentance. We're always turning back to our Lord and Master, renewing our love for Him, and recommitting and following Him as disciples. We're always turning away from our little kingdoms of self, which are really pathetic when you think about it. We're turning away from that, and we're turning back to our King and His glorious kingdom, which is certainly worth living for. My little kingdom of self is not worth living for. We do that Because the call of Jesus, the call of discipleship is demanding. It demands our all. So all of life is repentance. And that's why we have a prayer of confession and celebration each week before the sermon as part of our liturgy. We repent, we confess our sins, and then we celebrate the gospel and we enjoy our forgiveness. Let me ask you this morning, do you enjoy your forgiveness Are you enjoying the fact that God has forgiven you of all of your sins? Oh, do that today, friends. Enjoy the fact that God has forgiven you. That's the gospel. We're going to spend a few minutes looking at a brief introduction to Mark's gospel today. You don't have to write feverishly if you're a note taker because my sermon manuscript, like always, will be online. But when was Mark written? What's the date? Probably the late 50s or the early 60s AD, somewhere around 30 years after Jesus ascended into heaven. Now, who is the author? The author is Mark. Who is Mark? 
Mark does not name himself in his gospel, but we learn about his identity through early church history. Eusebius records the words of several people who identified Mark as the author of this gospel. According to Eusebius, who lived in the 260s to the 300s, he said that Papias, who was a disciple of John and claims to, claimed to have received information from John the Apostle, said this about Mark's gospel. Mark, having become the interpreter of Peter, wrote down accurately, though not in order, whatsoever he remembered of the things said or done by Christ. For he neither heard the Lord nor followed him, but afterward, as I said, he followed Peter, who adapted his teaching to the needs of his hearers, but with no intention of giving a connected account of the Lord's discourses, so that Mark committed no error while he thus wrote some of the things as he remembered them. For he was careful of one thing, not to omit any of the things which he had heard, and not to state them falsely. Now Eusebius also recorded the words of Clement of Alexandria, and said this, The gospel according to Mark had this occasion. As Peter had preached the word publicly at Rome and declared the gospel by the Spirit, many who were present requested that Mark, who had followed him, that's Peter, for a long time, and remembered his sayings, should write them out. And having composed the gospel, he gave it to those who had requested it. And then we get Irenaeus, who said this about Mark. After their departure, that's Peter and Paul's death, after their departure, Mark, the disciple and interpreter of Peter, did also hand down to us in writing what had been preached by Peter. So we have church history on our side telling us the accuracy of Mark being the author in writing this gospel. And so because of this, many scholars identify Mark's identity with that of John Mark, who was the assistant of Peter, Paul, and Barnabas. You can read about that in Acts and in other places. I think that the author of this gospel is most likely John Mark. Some people, like myself, see Mark as the unnamed naked man in Mark 14 who loses his garments and flees the scene when they're arresting Jesus. Do you remember that story? Jesus is about to be arrested and one of his disciples tries to flee from the Roman guards because he's scared and they grab him. And when they grab him, they rip his clothes off and he runs away naked. Mark 14, 51 to 52. Listen. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. I think that man is Mark the author of this gospel. I think he included this embarrassing scene from his life to include himself with the disciples and to show us all of their warts and and all of their hiccups. Remember in the gospels how the 12 disciples are always blowing it and doing or saying something stupid? I think Mark records this embarrassing story about himself to show us that we aren't perfect, that we don't have it all together, that we're broken and that we're messy. And that's why it's good news that Jesus came for people like us. Now, surely everyone knew the name of this guy who ran away naked. Everybody knew that guy because that story got circulated in the church. Trust me, his reputation lived on. And I think that everyone knew that it was Mark. And so this was just his tongue-in-cheek way of saying, A young man, hint, hint, wink, wink, ran away naked when they tried to arrest Jesus. But I think there's more evidence that this was Mark running away. 
We know from Acts 15 that Paul and Barnabas got in a heated dispute over Mark. Remember that? Barnabas wanted to bring Mark along with him on a missionary journey, but Paul disagreed. Why did Paul not want to bring Mark? Because Mark had bailed on them once before. I think Mark got scared and was fearful of the danger that was involved in preaching the gospel, so he bailed on them. In addition to this, there's this theme of fear in Mark's gospel. Mark 4, the disciples are afraid when Jesus calms the storm. Mark 5, people are afraid when Jesus casts demons out of that demon-possessed man and into those pigs that run off the cliff. Mark 5, the woman with the issue of blood, when she touches Jesus and she's healed, when she touches the hem of his garment, she's afraid. The ruler of the synagogue in that same moment feared when he received the news that his daughter had died. Mark 6, Herod feared John the Baptist. The disciples feared when Jesus walked on water in Mark 6. In Mark 9, the disciples were afraid to ask Jesus what he meant when he predicted his death. Mark 10, the crowds following Jesus were afraid. Mark 11, the chief priests were afraid of the crowd. Mark 11, again, the chief priests feared Jesus. And then in Mark 12, the chief priests feared the crowds once again that were following Jesus. So there's this theme of fear in the Gospel of Mark. And then finally, as James mentioned last week, how does Mark end his Gospel? Mark 16, verse 8. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. So when you see this theme of fear that Mark has scattered throughout his gospel, it makes sense now why he would end his gospel so abruptly with these words, they were afraid. And that's why I think Mark is the naked man who ran away afraid when Jesus was arrested, because Mark knows fear. Mark knows what it means to be afraid and to be scared of the suffering and the persecution that comes into your life because you're following Jesus as a disciple. Mark knows what it means to live in fear of your government and what they might do to you because you follow Jesus. Anybody here fearful of what the government might do to Christians and churches because we follow Jesus? Mark knew that fear. That's exactly what the Christians were experiencing when Mark wrote his gospel. So let's talk about the audience. Who was Mark writing to? The original audience was most likely Christians who were living in Rome. And Mark will emphasize suffering, and this is exactly what believers in Jesus were experiencing under the Roman government. They were suffering. And so Mark is writing to these churches and to these Christians, to these disciples, to give them back their awe of God. He's writing to Christians who are suffering because they've pledged their allegiance to Jesus, the Son of God. And these Romans Christians have a crazy ruler ruling over them, Nero. Nero was a loose cannon. Nero was just saying anything he wanted, crazy. He just opened his mouth and crazy things came out of his mouth. He was tweeting crazy things. He was doing crazy things. We know nothing about that, do we? A crazy leader just running his mouth. And Mark wants these believers to focus on Jesus. Mark knew how easy it was to get caught up in in all of the politics and to begin stressing about the future and worrying about the government. And so he writes to them again to remind them 
of their king. Mark wants them to put down their newspapers, to put down their smartphones, to put down their iPads, to get off Facebook and quit entertaining conspiracy theories. And listen, I love a good conspiracy theory. I do. Mark's saying, put it down for a minute and just read my gospel. Mark wants them to binge watch Jesus and get recalibrated and get their sense of awe and wonder back. That's not a bad plan. If what you see on TV and if what you read on Facebook and if what you read in the newspaper is getting you so worked up, just sit down and go read Mark's gospel. Your heart and your mind will thank you. And what will happen is that you will get your awe back. Just ask Jesus to help you. Mark wanted his gospel to be read because he says in Mark 13, 14, let the reader understand. Mark wants his audience to sit down and read about Jesus so that their awe of Jesus would come back. Mark wanted his readers, which now includes us, to be astonished and to be amazed and to be flabbergasted and to be awestruck by all that Jesus has done for us through his life, his death, and his resurrection. He wants to encourage us and to give us hope about Jesus' triumphant return over all the evil in this world. He's coming again. Mark wants us to know also that the way to glory, the way to enjoy that triumphant return when Jesus comes back to enjoy it forever, the way there, the path there, the path to glory, it's paved with suffering, just like it was for Jesus. Mark wants us to know that governments come and go, but God's people will still be here. Think about that. Think of all the governments that have come and gone in the course of history. Who's still here? The people of God. We ain't going anywhere. Mark wants us to know that persecution and suffering is normal Christianity. Now, what was the occasion and purpose of writing? What was happening when Mark wrote his gospel? As I mentioned, Mark was written during the Roman persecution of Christians, which culminated in Emperor Nero burning Christians and blaming them for the great fire in Rome. So things were tense when this, when this gospel was published. People did not like Christians. They did not like what Christians believed. Christians were also disliked because they refused to worship the emperor, which was common for Romans. Nero was the, the ruling tyrant, and his hatred for Jews was no secret. So it was very difficult. It was not easy being a Christian or a Jew during this time, much less if you were out evangelizing and being involved with discipleship. So when Mark records the words of Jesus in chapter 13, when Jesus tells the disciples, you will be brought before the authorities, this was very much a possibility in their mind when they were reading it. I think the book of Mark is definitely what the church today needs to hear. Mark will remind us that we will be hated for following Jesus. As I've told you many times before, if you love Jesus with all your heart, people will hate you with all of their guts. It was true when Mark was composing his gospel, and it's remained true since then. And so as Mark publishes his gospel, there's this tension that's in the air. 
But what are some of the major themes and noteworthy characteristics of Mark's gospel? Mark was probably the first gospel written. It's the shortest of the gospels coming in at 661 verses. And all but 31 verses of Mark's gospel are repeated in Matthew and Luke, which is one of the reasons I believe that Mark came first. I think Matthew and Luke used Mark as they recorded their gospels. Mark tells it like it is with the disciples' failures in his gospel. He doesn't downplay their mess-ups. In fact, they are highlighted. Probably why Mark includes the embarrassing naked story in Mark 14. Mark is also an action gospel, focusing less on Jesus' teaching and more on his miracles. Mark is not so much interested in the teachings of Jesus as to who Jesus is and what we, as his readers, will do with him. How will we respond to him? 36% of the book is made up of the last six chapters of Mark, which focus on the last eight days of Jesus' life. Mark will tell us that Jesus gets alone with his disciples about 20 times. Mark highlights two crucial components of discipleship, right confession that Jesus is the Son of God, and then right response following him. So there's right confession and there's a right response. Mark reads like an action movie with his, it's like an action reaction camera. Jesus will do something or Jesus will say something and then Mark will pan out the camera if you will and and look at the crowd and, and see how they're responding to what Jesus is doing and what Jesus is saying. Also the word immediately is used 41 times in Mark. Only 19 other times in the rest of the New Testament. So this is why reading Mark is like binge-watching something on Netflix. It's episode after episode, immediately, immediately, and then immediately, immediately. And then following Jesus is a major theme. The term follow is used 17 times in Mark because it's all about discipleship. So there's somewhat of a quick introduction. The notes will be online, but let's dig into the text. Look at Mark chapter 1. Verse 1, hear the word of the Lord. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And Mark hits the ground running him. Mark just starts in without any warning, without any kind of background. Mark doesn't wait for your microwave popcorn to finish popping. He just yells at you from the living room and he says, I'm not waiting any longer. The movie's starting. He just starts right in with his story. No background. Mark's not playing around. He wants to get straight to Jesus. He wants to get straight to the good news. And he doesn't give us any details on the birth of Jesus like Matthew and Luke do. He bypasses the birth narrative and goes directly to the baptism of Jesus. He gets right to it because he wants us to know the good news at the very beginning. He wants us to know the identity of Jesus, that he's the son of God who was sent by God the Father to save sinners. So Mark just flies past the opening credits, and he gets to the main point, which is the gospel, the good news that God saves sinners like us. Now, of course, Mark expects you to realize that verse 1 harkens back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, which says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Mark wants us to know that just as something very significant happened when those words were uttered in Genesis 1, so too something very significant has happened at the beginning of his gospel. He's telling us, listen, God, God, God came down. 
God came down in the person of his son Jesus. Now think about that. What wild and crazy, out of this world, flabbergasting words are captured in verse 1. I mean, what a way to start a story. Look at this opening, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. What a way to begin your story. Now, some stories begin with great openings like a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. And that's a great opening too, right? Man, that one doesn't come close to this one. The problem is that we've become too familiar with it. It just doesn't shock us anymore. We just read over that and we're like, the beginning of the gospel, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. All right, yeah, I heard that. I know all those words. My four-year-old knows all those words. We're just too familiar with these words that we just read past them and they don't shock us. The beginning of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Those 12 words in Mark 1.1 and how you respond to them will determine everything about your life now and everything about your life for all of eternity. Twelve years from now, these words will matter to you. Twelve hundred years from now, twelve thousand years from now, these twelve words will shape where you are then. You need to wrestle with these twelve words and figure out if you believe it because all of eternity depends on it. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of of God. And so in verse 1, we get this allusion to Genesis chapter 1. And what Mark is saying is that we are going from black and white to color TV with this gospel. We're going from black and white to color. All of the types and the shadows in the Old Testament that were pointing toward Jesus coming, they're now coming into focus now, and it's a technicolor gospel. We're moving from black and white to color here. And that's what we want to do every week when we gather here as a church family, as the people of God. We want to see Jesus again in technicolor. Because if you're, at least I do anyway, because if you're like me, life is hard. Work is hard. Parenting is hard, right? School is hard. Everything's hard. Life is exhausting. And so we come in here every week And we're exhausted. And we want rest. Out there, it's just go, 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 go. As I said two weeks ago, in here it should be green pastures and still waters. We we want rest. I don't need another list of things to do. I have too much going on in my life. I already have too many things to do. I don't need another list. I need rest. I want rest. I just want to come in here on Sunday morning and and hear about Jesus. And we were singing those songs this morning. And I was just like water just washing over me. I was just like, yes, I need to hear that again. He loves me. I don't know how he loves me. I'm, I'm a scoundrel. I'm a rebel. And he loves me. And that's why I'm not going to give you a to-do list every week. 
because I know that you're exhausted too. I know that sometime early in the week, your view of Jesus, just like mine, starts to fade some. Monday morning is as faithful as it ever is, right? And then slowly throughout the week, our view of Jesus starts to fade a little. And before you know it, we go back to a black and white TV Jesus. And so Sunday morning comes, and it becomes the time through worship, through prayer, through the sacraments, and through the preaching of the word of God that we begin to see Jesus again in technicolor. No more monochrome Messiah. We get recalibrated again. We get our awe back. Every week we need the spirit of God to say to each one of us, let awe of God capture your hearts. And so here's what we want to do each week. We want to give you your awe back every single week as you come in here. We want to give you your awe back. We're in the business here of giving people their awe back. Awe of God, week after week. Paul Tripp says this, and I've read this before. Awe of God must dominate my ministry because one of the central missional gifts of the gospel of Jesus Christ is to give people back their awe of God. A human being not living with functional awe of God is profoundly disadvantaged. He is off the rails, trying to propel the train of his life in a meadow, and he may not even know it. When awe of God is absent, it is quickly replaced by awe of ourselves. If you are not living for God, the only other alternative is to live for yourself. So a church must turn people back to the one thing for which they were created, to live in a sturdy, joyful, faithful awe of God. This means every sermon should be prepared by a person whose study is marked by awe of God. The sermon must be delivered in awe and have as its purpose to motivate awe in those who hear Children's ministry must have as its goal to ignite in young children a life-shaping awe of God. The youth ministry of the church must move beyond Bible entertainment and do all it can to help teens see God's glory and name it as the thing for which they will live. Women's ministry must do more than give women a place to fellowship with one another and do crafts. Women need to be rescued from themselves and myriad self-interests that nip at their hearts. Awe of God provides that rescue. Men's ministries need to recognize the coldness in the heart of so many men to the things of God and to confront and stimulate men with their identity as those created to live and lead out of a humble zeal for God's glory rather than their own. Missions and evangelism, too, must be awe-driven. Remember, Paul argues that this is the reason for the cross. He says that Jesus came so that those who live may no longer live for themselves, but for him who loved them and gave himself for them, 2 Corinthians 5.15. Only powerful grace can keep this awe alive. Only then can we be used to ignite that awe in others. And so the awe of God is one of the themes of Mark. People are awestruck as they encounter Jesus. And we want you to be awestruck by Jesus every week here at this church. We want you to encounter him and be astonished and be amazed that he is as good as he says he is. 
And so Mark is writing his gospel so that the original audience and us will not lose their sense of awe and wonder. These Roman Christians, they've heard stories about Jesus. Stories about Jesus had been circulating for 30-some years. They knew Jesus healed people. They knew he cast out demons. They knew he raised the dead and stilled the storm. And so why does Mark tell them again what they already know and what they've already heard? Because they have become too familiar with it. They're too familiar with it. I know that story. They, like us, have been around church for so long that they've heard all about Jesus, but they, like us, have just gotten too familiar with this incredible news that it doesn't astound them anymore. They've simply lost their awe of Jesus. That sense of wonder is gone. That sense of amazement is just gone. So they just show up at church on Sunday. They rub some elbows with others. They drink coffee. And they leave. Mark wants them to read his gospel and have them see Jesus heal sick people and then have them go, wow, did you see that? He just healed that leper. I saw it with my own eyes. Holy cow, who is this Jesus guy? That's how you're supposed to respond to Jesus. That's worship. And then you're supposed to want more. It's like binge watching a show on Netflix. I got to get more of Jesus. Just one more episode and and then I'll go to bed. And when Mark says here the beginning of the gospel, he doesn't mean that this is the very beginning of the gospel in the Bible as if the gospel is merely a New Testament idea. The gospel, the good news that God saves sinners, is in the Old Testament. It's everywhere. It's there in Genesis 3 right after Adam and Eve sinned. God promises to send the Redeemer to crush the head of that talking serpent. This is what all of the Old Testament was unfolding. There's a Redeemer coming, the Messiah, the Anointed One. And we see that with the word Christ in verse 1. Christ is the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah, which means Anointed One. Jesus' last name is not Christ. Mark is not giving us the last name of Jesus. He's telling us that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Messiah, the anointed one that was predicted in all of the promises and all of the prophecies of the Old Testament. All of those years of waiting and hoping. And now Mark is saying in verse 1, guys, he's here. He's here. He's here. We've waited. We've waited. We've waited. We've heard about him. He's here now. Emmanuel, God with us. Don't just read past this verse or assume that it's merely some title or some prologue to his gospel. This is crazy. The good news is that Jesus, the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, came to save sinners. So let's make it personal. He came to save you. Back in Genesis 3, God told Adam and Eve, a Redeemer's coming and he's going to save you. Put yourself there in Genesis 3. Make it personal. God told them, he's coming to save you. That's exactly what Jesus' name means. His name is Aramaic, and it comes from the Hebrew name Joshua, which means Yahweh saves. So Jesus' own name tells us who he is and what he came to do, which was to save sinners. And so now the gospel is in technicolor. 
We've gone from black and white to color because God came down. It's good news that God, God came down in the person of Jesus. Fully God, fully man with those two natures united in one person. So verse 1 is telling us that in Jesus, God battles our sin with reassurance, not shame. He battles our sin with kindness, not punishment. He deals with our sin with mercy, not judgment. Love, not abandonment. That's what Mark means by good news. God answers our problem of sin not with a list of things to do, not with some morals, not with some rules, but rather with a person. Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. That's how deep our problem is. Keeping the rules will not save us. Being God will not save us. Being good will not save us. We're sinners and we need something or someone outside of us to rescue us. Can you imagine how weird it would be if we could be saved by works? Think about this for a moment. How strange to be saved by checking off a list. What would our songs look like? Then sings my soul, my Savior God is me. How great I am, how great I am. I kept the rules, I checked off all the list. How great I am, how great I am. (laughs) Is that what we want? Is that what we need? No, we need the Son of God. And that's why it's good news, because it's not riding on us. It's not riding on us, it's all riding on Jesus. If this thing is going to work, sinners being saved from God's wrath, it's going to take Jesus. We need good news, not law, because God's law cannot deliver us. God's law is good. It it exposes us as sinners. It shows us that we have put ourselves at the center of the universe. God's law shows us that we live in awe of ourselves as the king and queens of our own little kingdoms. God's law shows us that we have put ourselves at the center of the story. But God's law cannot put Jesus back there as the rightful king of our hearts. God's law cannot deliver us from that self-absorbed bondage. No set of rules, no laws can restore our sense of awe and wonder and amazement. We don't need to be told to pay our way. We need to be told that Jesus paid it all. We need good news. And that's what the word gospel in verse 1 means. It's the Greek word evangelion. William Tyndale said, Evangelion is a Greek word signifying good, merry, glad, and joyful news that makes a man's heart glad and makes him sing, dance, and leap for joy. Now, originally, it was a word that was used when a king and an army would go out to war, and if they defeated their enemies, somebody would run back to town and say, we won, we were victorious, we won, we beat them. By the time of Mark's writing, Christians had latched onto this word that it became a technical term that Christians used to announce the awe-inspiring good news that Jesus is victorious over sin, death, and the devil. And so it's the good news that leads to awe of God. And then awe of God leads to mission. When we hear the good news, the merry, glad, and joyful news of Jesus' victory, it should make us sing and dance and leap for joy. And then it should catapult us into mission. 
awe of God should lead us as individuals and as a church to mission, to herald this good news to our city, our neighbors, and our coworkers. So let awe of God capture your heart this morning. And then go announce this good news to this city, to your neighbors, to your coworkers, and your family. Tell them that God saves sinners. And as we walk through the gospel of Mark, it is my prayer that we will all be awestruck by Jesus week after week. Let's pray. Father, thank you for mind-blowing good news. I confess that I am too familiar with it. I'm a pastor. These are the waters I swim in, and yet it can become so familiar to me and so familiar to us, Father. We just aren't shocked, God. Would you bring back that awe, Father? That we would be astonished and amazed that you love us and that you forgive us and that Jesus paid it all. And then may that catapult us into mission to love and serve others and share the hope that we have. Would you do it for more joy in our lives and more glory for your name, in Jesus' name.